Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Independent Lens is, by my estimation, the premier platform for uh, documentary filmmaking on television. It is on PBS. It's been on PBS now for entering into its 18th season. And we were lucky enough last year to have the... uh, Lois Vossen, the executive producer of Independent Lens, come on to talk to us about the upcoming season. And she's back again uh, to talk to us about this upcoming season for Independent Lens. She's been a part of so many wonderful documentary films. So as one of the people who was around at the very beginnings of the Sundance Film Festival as an associate managing director of the festival, whose career in fostering and promoting great talent, especially in the world of documentary filmmaking, it goes without saying that Lois Vossen is one of the best at it, and she continues to do that today. And we're fortunate to have with us again Lois Vossen here on Film School Radio. Welcome back. First of all, that was an incredibly flattering introduction. <laughs> I, if you could see me, I'm rather, you know, I think I've turned three shades of red. But at any rate, um, it was so great to talk to you a year ago. I can't, I can't believe it's been a whole year. That to me is the really crazy part. Well, welcome back. And I, uh, this year, uh, this season uh, looks great. It starts uh, coming up on October 28th. So that, so that's this coming. Monday on uh, PBS. Yeah. Uh, check your local listings, but it's usually around 10 o'clock that you can find a first film of this season made in Boise. But is there anything about this particular batch of films that we're going to be seeing over the course of the next two or three months that is there a theme or is it just a is just is it the excellence in filmmaking? Is there something that really kind of caught your attention? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, this season, um, about 80% of the films are films that we funded and co-produced. So they're films that have been in our world for, you know, in a lot of instances for years. I mean, three years, five years. In the case of Always in Season with Jackie Olive, 10 years ago, we began working with Jackie on that film. The theme, I would say, that always for me emerges is how extraordinarily current the films are. Even a film like Always in Season that began 10 years ago, but is looking at race and the residual effects of, you know, slavery and white supremacy, how absolutely urgent and relevant it is right now. And the fact that these filmmakers have their pulse on these stories, and even when it takes them years to make the story, they seem to emerge into the world at a time when it's incredibly relevant. One Child Nation, Nan Fu's film on the one child policy in China, looks at what happens when a government decides what is a family and how to treat children, coming out at a time when our government is putting children in cages and deciding what defines a family and how do you, you know, so it's it's just yeah. always amazing to me how the filmmakers really have their finger on the pulse of what are the larger conversations happening in our society. Yeah. Well, let, let's just 
without again, I, I without going over every film because I'd, we'd be here for the next hour and a half talking about how wonderful they are. Not fortunate, <laughs> and that would be great, Mike. But our, our <laughs> listeners would get uh, yeah restless. I think they would get restless. Well, the first one up on on next um, Monday uh, is uh, Made in Boise, and it's a story, as is as is often the case with uh, documentary filmmaking, and that is it's something that you never would have imagined in some ways and but once you hear the premise you're pulled into it immediately and that's the case with the made in boise tell us a little bit about that film. yeah absolutely yeah beth Allah is the wonderful director of this film and beth levinson the producer and um they began looking at a boise idaho the surrogacy capital of the united states who knew, who knew? um but it turns out that there are more surrogacy Births and um, happening there than any other city in the country, given its population and size. And what I found fascinating, and I think what we, all of us who worked on the film, found fascinating was there are a lot of misconceptions about surrogacy and uh, being a gestational carrier. And this particular film really tries to help us understand what is behind the decisions that women and men and families make in order to have the family that they want. Um, And in this case, that means, um, you know, working with a woman to have her give birth to their child. And so the characters are very diverse. We have a couple who cannot have cannot conceive and have a child. We have a gay couple who cannot conceive and have a child. And we have single people who cannot conceive and have a child. And so it really looks at this definition of what is family, really what's behind this rising practice in terms of how people are making their families. And I remember way, way back in the very early 90s, dear friends of mine, uh, hired a surrogate, and at the time it was very, uh, you know, crazy and outrageous. People thought, right. and now it's become much more common. And yet the myths and the preconceptions about it persist. Right. And so it's been a really interesting conversation to spark. Right. And one of the things I really liked about Made in Boise was it it focuses a lot of the attention on the surrogates, on the on the women who are bearing children in in this film. And it's our window into these people that you're describing, people from Europe, from the gay couple, the people, the, the couple who are unable to conceive. It's about that. It's about the emotions involved and, and uh, the feelings of the surrogates. What are they going through? It, which is, I thought, a wonderful perspective. And also the fact that Nicole, who's the woman who set up an agency for this, the beauty of this is that now you have the parameters, you have the rules by which, the rules of the road by which we all who are involved in this will live by. And I thought that that was such an important part of the story, that this isn't some kind of out of the back of somebody's car kind of operation, that this is something (laughs) that, that is being done in a way that is a model if, you know, carry through to across the country and maybe around the world, who knows, but we are in a new world. Science is something that we can harness and use to the betterment of all. So I think one of one of the big misconceptions and fallacies is that only very poor women decide to become surrogates. And in Nicole, one of the women you mentioned, loves having babies. She loves being pregnant. She loves having babies. She has very easy births. And so she actually began, as you said, an agency because there are 
thousands of other women who feel the same way and who get great satisfaction out of helping people uh, create a family. So there are a lot of different kinds of women who become surrogates and lots of different kinds of families that decide to choose this as a way to create their family. So yeah, it's um, it, to me it's you know, kind of a perfect independent lens film in the sense that it's about a topic that people are aware of, but a lot of people just aren't really um, engaged with. And yet growing, growing numbers of families are choosing surrogacy as a viable option. Absolutely. Well, I'm just going to kind of hopscotch around here a little bit on the on, yeah. on what's coming up. I have seen the interpreters. I actually interviewed the directors of that. It's a wonderful documentary, and I think an important one because these are the forgotten people uh, uh, in the, in war and uh, and the consequences for them can be very very dire in terms of what happens if uh, if things go badly. So I, I'm yeah. just rec- I'm just kind of randomly recommending. I would recommend every one of them, but I just that one I happen to be familiar with. Uh, tell me a little bit about decades of fire because this is something I grew up remembering very well about the Bronx. It was sort of just this sort of in in the sort of zeitgeist, this kind of hellscape of a place that you wouldn't want to be caught in. But this is, a, I assume, a very different perspective on what happened in the South yeah, Bronx. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, um, the filmmakers Vivian, Gretchen, and Julia really wanted to look at that seminal decade in the Bronx when the Bronx literally not figuratively, right. literally was on fire. And what was behind it And again, similar to many of our films, there's an idea about what happened, but then there's the really the look behind the curtain. And as it turned out with Decade of Fire, the idea was that these poor people in the Bronx were just lighting their own homes on fire and that they were so desperate. And there's great footage from politicians of the time, uh, going to the Bronx and saying, you know, you created this mess, you fix it, basically. And then there were other politicians who tried to help, like Jimmy Carter. But what's really fascinating is the story behind it when we learn that uh, landlords were actually paying people to start fires so that they could collect huge insurance settlements, and that this went on for not just years, but for close to a decade. Yeah. And no one was ever held accountable. Right. And so wealthy landlords um, made a lot of money out of burning their own buildings that, of course, then displaced thousands of families. And to me, again, while it's historical in that it's about the Bronx, you know, in the 70s, it's very relevant to all the gentrification that's going on right now in New York, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, but also in Nashville and Minneapolis and, you know, Chicago. Every place I travel to, I see this huge displacement, always on the backs of the working class and almost always on the backs of people of color and or poor whites. And so Decade of Fire to me is really the canary in the coal mine, you know, how these things happen when... um when people aren't held accountable, and in this case, when the insurance companies and the other people committing fraud were never held accountable because, you know, it was it was fashionable to let them get away with it. Yeah. I'll tell you it, it, just an editorial comment here, and that is someone, some great filmmaker or great filmmaking team needs to do 
a, a documentary on real estate, on just the, the machinations mm. of what happens and the impact. Real estate is such a fundamental part of our society. And I, any, any documentary that shines a light on the abuses that take place in that sector of our economy is a winner to me because I see Mike, so... you are leading us right into conscience. Point. Well, there you conscience go. <laughs> point is it takes place in the Hamptons, and if Hamptons is anything, it's real estate. Yeah. And um, what really fascinated me about this story when it came to us for funding was Treva was looking at sort of um, uh, three different issues that were intertwined. One was the Shinnecock Native American. Indians who have lived in the Hamptons for centuries. You know, they date back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, they predate white settlers. And the fact that their ancient burial grounds were being dug up and turned into golf courses and or private homes. But the second thing that was really fascinating is the real estate market in the Hamptons and how it was displacing not just Native Americans, but Again, farmers and working class people, fishermen who could no longer make a living because the water there has been so contaminated by fertilizer and, you know, lawn, lawn, pesticide runoff, etc. And then also this idea of how do we come together when we have so many, you know, the different classes. If you have very, very wealthy, the 1% of the 1% who is now who live in the Hamptons, but they need people to mow their lawns and to trim their trees and to run their restaurants and to wash their dishes. But nobody can afford to live in the Hamptons. And so you end up sort of creating hell in paradise because you've, it's gone so lopsided when it's literally the only people who can afford to live there are the 1% of the 1%. So conscience point is really about real estate and it's also uh, very much about Native American history and culture and what happens when we choose to ignore that or usurp it and pretend that history started with white settlers. Um, And so that's why I think that film and it premiered at the Hamptons Film Festival um, a week and a half ago. And And ironically, (laughs) it premiered on uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, aka Columbus day, uh, which I thought was really a perfect, um, yeah. a perfect day and uh, moment to premiere that film. Mm-hmm. Well, were, were uh, white people in white shoes rioting in the streets after the film was aired? Or, no, uh, no they, they so don't, that's the problem. They don't have to riot. They have way too much money. They don't have to riot. They just write out checks. They just write um, checks, yes. Yeah, they just write checks. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I think the Hamptons is obviously unique because of its location, but that is happening everywhere. This idea of only a certain percentage of our population can afford to own a home or to live somewhere. Here in the Bay Area, we have teachers and firemen who have to commute two hours, three hours. Um, You know, I know a woman who works at UC Berkeley who has to commute three hours one way because she can't afford to live in the Bay Area. So when that keeps happening in our cities and our towns, then we really are, you know, in a situation that is pretty dire. And it does go back to your point about real estate. 
as is often the case with documentary filmmakers, they are uh, they are uh, looking over the horizon to what is coming. And uh, I, yeah. I, I, I have been told by a congressman uh, recently that while health care is probably the number one issue in terms of how people view uh, the prism through which they look at politics, uh, housing is the next big issue that will, in some ways, either push to the side healthcare if we ever get our act together, or uh, will will be the co-joined issues because the the it's just absolutely gutting the uh, ability of people to essentially sustain a, a livable existence. Well, Mike, I think you should be in the World Series because now you've just pitched the perfect ball for me to talk about Bedlam. <laughs> bedlam is the, that absolute intersection. It's the intersection of healthcare yeah. and real estate slash economy, you know, um, and the economic divide. And it looks at very specifically the incarceration of the mentally ill yeah. and um, people who have drug addiction issues. And that really is. Um, again, sort of a clarion call for how we choose to treat the most vulnerable in our society and what kind of society we will have as a result of that. And um, it's a really, really powerful film. It takes place in Los Angeles on Skid Row and also in the L.A. Community Hospital, which has the largest population of homeless people. But it also travels to Philadelphia, where the filmmakers own family lived and his sister was bipolar and so we look at how that illness impacted their family which chose to live in secrecy rather than talk about mental illness and it's all wrapped up in our healthcare system yeah. and when we made a decision as a country I guess during the Reagan administration yeah. to close down all the mental health facilities and put all of those people out on the street and not surprisingly began sort of this crisis in homelessness across our country because there's not a place to go. The way it's really tied into what you said, though, is that what's happening now is rather than build mental health facilities, the prison for profit community is choosing to put mental health facilities inside prisons. So let's incarcerate them and then help them once they're inside prison rather than treating the illness or treating the drug addiction and keeping them as valuable members of society. We're now trying to push them all into the criminal justice system and treat them with inside the prison confines, wow. which I guess I'm getting a little political now, but wow. that is what's been happening for the last 10 years or longer, but now it's sort of on steroids. Well, so I, oh my God. Bedlam looks at that, as well as a few of our other films that really look at wow. um, the criminal justice system. I, I try to keep my ear to the ground. I was unaware of that aspect of the for-profit uh, uh, jail system. Wow, that's disheartening. And, and you just actually said it. It's happening in jails. They're not actually doing it in federal prisons. They're doing it all in local jails. Right. So they're going to impoverished communities in the Midwest, in the South, in Louisiana, in, in the Farm Belt, in the Rust Belt, where you know there used to be factories. And they're saying, you lost your factory. We have a great idea. Let's build a prison, a for-profit prison, and then we'll put a mental health facility inside, and then that's how you'll deal with your opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. 
And so let's just incarcerate this huge percentage of your population. The largest growing population are women, by the way. And then that's how we'll treat these, you know, these problems in our society. And so jails are becoming the fastest growing sort of new factory in America. Well, Bedlam airs on April 13th, um, and I just uh, this season of uh, Independent Lens runs from October 28th all the way to June 22nd, and uh, it is remarkable, as always. And I, uh, Lois Vossen, I, rather than let's leave it there, let's just tease people with what we've talked about, and I'm going to just throw in a shameless plug for Film School Radio and say that the interpreters... Uh, Always in Season 1, Child Nation, uh, Jim Allison Breakthrough, Eating Up Easter have all been on Film School Radio, so you can find out about those films via uh, our site uh, and wonderful films, all of them. And we have a whole bunch of other ones that are coming up on Independent Lens, which you can also check out by going to uh, pbs.org Independent Lens and find out what the upcoming season looks like. There's film information there, what days, what times, and all of the rest of it. And I just, uh, this is becoming um, one of my favorite times of the year, the opportunity to talk with you about these incredible documentary films. And um, gosh, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, Lois Vossen, for, for... Well, thank you, spending. Mike, for, for giving us the opportunity and for talking to all the filmmakers. I know that they really, really enjoy the conversation, and I think it allows you and them to go more in-depth. So um, uh, we appreciate that a great deal, and I can't wait to have another conversation <laughs> with you. There's, as you said, so many great films, all of which I think are um, you know, adding something to the conversation as we try to figure out how we you know, live in this crazy world. Yeah. Anytime, anytime you've got something going on with PBS or something, uh, it's always a pleasure. It has been incredible. So it's our second conversation and I look forward to many more. And so please uh, come back anytime, Lois. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I hope you have a great day. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.